So we're John chapter 14, we're reading uh, verses 15 to 31, and it's entitled in the New International Version, Jesus Promises that the Holy Spirit will come. If you love me, obey my commands. I will ask the Father, and he will give you another friend to help you, and to be with you forever. That friend is the Spirit of Truth. The The world can't accept him. That's because the world does not see him or know him. But you know him. He lives with you and he will be in you. I will not leave you like children who don't have parents. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore. But you will see me because I live. You will also. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father. You will know that you are in me and I am in you. Anyone who has has my commands and obeys them loves me. My Father will love the one who loves, loves me. I too will love them and I will show myself to them. Then Judas spoke. Lord, he said, why do you plan to show yourself only to us? Why not also to the world? The Jesus who spoke, sorry, the Judas who spoke these words was not Judas Iscariot. Jesus replied, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. My Father will love them. We will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my teaching. The words you hear me say are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. I've spoken all these things while I'm still with you. But the Father will send the friend in my name to help you. The friend is the Holy Spirit. He will teach you all things. He will remind you of everything I've said to you. I leave my peace with you. I give my peace to you. I do not give it to you as the world does. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. You heard me say, I'm going away. And I'm coming back to you. If you love me, you will be glad I'm going to the Father. The Father is greater than I am. I've told you before, now, before it happens. Then when it does happen, you will believe. I will not say much more to you. The prince of this world is coming. He has no power over me. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father. They must also learn that I do exactly what my Father has commanded me to do. Come now, let us leave. Thank you very much, Bill. We said last Sunday, uh, the pastor and I are going to be sharing the pulpit leading up to Easter. And we're concentrating on passages from John's Gospel, starting in chapter 14, and taking us through to the crucifixion story and the Easter story itself. And last Sunday, looking at the first 15 or so verses of chapter 14, we began to see that chapter 14 is a chapter full of wonderful assurances. And they are assurances because we have a bunch of really troubled disciples, The chapter starts with, don't let your hearts be troubled. The previous chapter, they've just heard that one of them is going to betray the Lord. Judas has left. Peter's just been told that he's going to deny his Lord three times. And Christ has been dropping hint after hint after hint that he's going away. And they're troubled. And I believe the whole of John chapter 14 really is a a series of assurances 
that they are given, and I believe we are given, in our own troubled times. When we are sad, when we find ourselves in despair or pain or anguish or loneliness or disillusionment. Last Sunday, we looked at the first three of these assurances. We saw that the first assurance in the first few verses of chapter 14 is the assurance that despite what happens, our future is secure. Our future is secure. There is a place for us in the Father's house. The second assurance comes from verse 7 to verse 11. And that assurance is that we know the Father right now. We have the capacity right now as God's children to have a relationship with God the Father, maker of heaven and earth. That is a huge assurance. And the third assurance we looked at is on verses 12 to 15. And that is the assurance that we have a very special privilege. And that is the privilege of prayer. Now we need to move on into chapter 14 and see if there's, if there's anything else. And I think there are three more assurances here for us when our hearts are troubled. And these assurances, I said last time, are not for everyone. They are addressed to Christ's disciples. And they are addressed to us, you and I today, who love the Lord Jesus as our Lord and Savior. They are not addressed to the general public. It doesn't mean that anyone in the general public can't come to know the Lord Jesus and then be assured in this special way. But these are assurances for God's children. So let's have a look look at assurance number four. And we go to uh, the first few verses that Bill read to us, verses 16 through 18. And I'm going to call this assurance, we have the assurance of the indwelling Holy Spirit. We have a special assurance, and that is the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate. The version that Bill read said friend. That's a perfectly good word there as well. An advocate to help you and to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him. For he lives with you and will be within you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Now, John is going to have an awful lot more to say about the Holy Spirit in these next few chapters. Chapter 15 and chapter 16. So it's not the time now to do a kind of full expose of what the Holy, or who the Holy Spirit is and what he does. But let's concentrate on what we're told here in this particular chapter. What are some of the things about knowing the work of the Holy Spirit that can give us such assurance in our times of stress and anxiety? Well, the first thing is that the Holy Spirit is sent from the Father as an advocate. An advocate. Yes, Jesus has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit, but he has a lot to say about the Holy Spirit, I believe, because we need to understand without the presence of the Holy Spirit in our lives, we cannot begin We cannot even begin to live the Christian life, let alone during difficult times. It's critical that we know who he is, what he does, and how he does it. And immediately, he's described as being sent from the Father as an advocate. And that word is being translated in different ways, in different versions. You may be familiar with the translation that says he is a comforter. In other versions, he's called a counselor or a friend. In the latest versions, he's often called the advocate. It's an interesting little Greek word, the word parakletos. 
And para, P-A-R-A, is a word, you know, we use it in English whenever we want to say something is alongside of something else. So parallel lines are lines that run alongside one another. If you're a parastatal organization, you're an organization that works alongside a state organization. And this, this advocate is called the parakletos. And kletos comes from the Greek word kaleo, which means to call, to call, or to be called. So here is the Holy Spirit, who is one who is called by God, sent by God, to be alongside us, to walk alongside us, to advocate for us, just as an advocate in a court of law, whether we're innocent or guilty, whoever you are, he he pleads our cause. He says, it's okay, I'm here, I'm on your side. That's what he does. He's an encourager, a comforter, counselor. It's his job. And we're going to say that a few times this morning. It's his job. Sent by God the Father to care for and to guide and to, to uplift each of his children in these troubled times. And do you have that experience this morning? He is your encourager when you're tempted to quit. He's your advocate when you're being falsely accused or harassed. He's your counselor when you've run out of answers. And he's your comforter when the tears start to flow. And I tell you this morning that no other religion and no other faith can come close to offering you that wonderful help in times of trouble. Secondly, the Holy Spirit is called here the Spirit of Truth. He will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever The spirit of truth. Now the word truth is another favorite word of John's. John has several favorite words. One of them is the word word. The word love is one of his favorites. And so is the word truth. Right in the beginning of his gospel he says this, And the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and made his dwelling among us. And we have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus himself says in an earlier part of this chapter, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. And here he is called the spirit of truth. And it's repeated again later in the chapter and again in chapter 15. But what does this business of truth have to do with assurance? How does the spirit of truth assure me of anything? Well, my view is this, that One of the tasks that is given to the Holy Spirit is to reveal the truth to his people. And where does this truth reside? Well, this is where the truth resides. Resides in this book that you have in front of you. In God's word, the Bible. If you read the Bible without the Holy Spirit's guidance, interpreting it to your heart and and to your mind and convincing you of its truth... The Bible will remain simply another book, a book of confusing words, even empty words. It is the task of the Holy Spirit to take the written word off the page and make it come alive with meaning in our hearts. It's his job. It's what he does. If you're troubled, what kind of advice do you want this morning? It's no use receiving useless words of little comfort. It's no use being told just to get a grip or sort yourself out. 
The advice you need must be based on real, demonstrable, workable truth. And there's only one place that this truth exists, and it's in God's Word, interpreted by God's Spirit. A third thing we hear about the Holy Spirit here as He indwells us, that He'll never abandon us. He indwells us permanently. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. I will not leave you. I will come to you. When our hearts are troubled, we want help that will always be there. We don't want help that is only there when it's convenient to the helper. We want to know that we can always call on this help, no matter what our circumstances and where where we happen to be. Since the time of Pentecost, the first Pentecost, the, the Holy Spirit has indwelt the lives of Christian believers in a way that he was never available to Old Testament people. In the Old Testament times, the Holy Spirit would become available and and move in the lives of people at specific times and for specific purposes. Whether it was Moses confronting Pharaoh, or David confronting Goliath, or Daniel in the lion's den, the Spirit of God was there, but he was not indwelling them permanently. That begins with the beginning of the age of the church. That begins with the church of which we are now a part. He indwells us permanently. I was thinking about the other day, I thought, you know why in the Old Testament there's so much talk about angels? They're all over the place. You get to the New Testament and they're hardly mentioned until you get to the very end in the book of Revelation when the, when the end is there anyway. And I think one of the reasons is because we have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, we don't need all those angelic visitations that they needed in the Old Testament time. We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. There will be some who tell you that that's not true. It is true. It's what the Bible says. Today, he permanently lives in the heart of each of his children. It's his job. It's what he does. This must have come as staggering news to the disciples. Staggering news. It may sometimes feel as if we are God's orphans. We're not. We're his dearest children. And we're ministered to daily by the Holy Spirit. We need to claim that promise right, right away. And it's a promise that is not available to everybody. Men, women, young people of the world, as it were, can know nothing of this remarkable assurance. They can live only by sight, and there's no place for faith. In many ways, the very presence of the Holy Spirit in the world is an indictment against the world. It's a constant reminder of the fact that the world rejected Christ and his work of salvation. And the sad, very, very sad result is that those who know not Christ remain always and forever comfortless, abandoned, helpless, and hopeless. Hopeless. It was George Bernard Shaw, the avowed atheist, who used the phrase... We are orphans in a very hostile universe. And until we come to know the cross and we come to know the Jesus of the cross, we are indeed orphans in a hostile universe. But not for us. We have this indwelling Holy Spirit. What about the fifth assurance? The fifth assurance is this, and you'll see it in verses 19 to 24. The fourth assurance, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit. The fifth is this. You enjoy now the Father's love. 
you enjoy right now the Father's love. As I read these few verses, count the number of times you hear the word love. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. Because I live, you will also live. On that day, you will realize that I am in the Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. Whoever has my commands and keeps them is the one who loves me. The one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and show myself to them. Then Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said, But Lord, why do you intend to show yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus replied, Anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. The Father will love them, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Anyone who does not love me will not obey my Father and obey my teaching. These words you hear are not my own. They belong to the Father who sent me. Where on earth do you begin when the topic is love? Where do you start? Already he, Jesus has turned the disciples' world upside down. He's, he's completely shaken their understanding of what the word love means. Just moments ago, moments ago, he said, a new commandment I give unto you. Here's a new kind of thing. As I've loved you, you must love one another. And that way everyone will know that you're my disciples. So he puts love on a, on a much higher pedestal than it's ever been before. And this is the theme, really, of certainly the first letter of John. That wonderful first John in chapter 4 where he talks about the, the importance of us loving one another. And it's in the context of one of the most important statements about God that can be made. When he simply says, God is love. Our pastor shared with us a couple of weeks back uh, some, uh, one or two messages about the doctrine of God. And if you were to sum up the doctrine of God and God's attributes in one or two phrases, you would probably have to say two things. God is love and God is holy. And I believe we have a message for the world today and it's both of those things. But the world need to hear that God loves them. We've somehow stopped talking about that and we need to say it again and again and again. But in what way does this love that God has for us act as assurance in time of trouble? Why is it so assuring? How can we take the words, God is love, off the page when we're in pain and make it work for us? Well, did you count how many times the word love appeared? I think it's about seven times, if I'm right. Maybe wrong. And each time it appears... It's the same word. It's not always the same word in the New Testament. This time it is. It's the word agape. Strange word. It's not the word eros, which is a Greek word which means romantic or sensual love. It's not the word philia, which means brotherly love or comradeship or affection. It's not even the word storge, which has to do with parental or familial love. It's the word agape. It's a special word, and it's a special word because it appears very little outside of the New Testament. And its meaning, its etymology is, is, is a little bit obscure, but it seems to come from a verb that speaks of giving and giving and giving and sacrificing and of selflessness. And probably the closest we come to understanding it is seeing how it's used in the verse that, that Bill read to us right at the beginning of the service. For God so loved the world, what that he gave. 
What did he give his only son? That's where we get close to the meaning of agape. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. That's agape love. It's a powerful love. And the verse says in 23, my father will love them. And we will come to them and make our home with them. This is a love that acts. It doesn't just feel. It's a love that doesn't just talk. It's a love that does things. Paul adds to this picture of love when he talks about God's love and our love for one another in 1 Corinthians. And he says, it is patient and kind. It is not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others, nor is it self-seeking. It is not easily angered, and it keeps no record of wrong. It does not delight in evil, but rejoices in the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes. It always perseveres. And look at the source of this love this morning. Where does this love come? Jesus says, my Father will love them. There's nothing wrong with teaching our children in Sunday club to sing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. But Jesus is very adamant here. The source of love comes from the Father. It's his love that caused him to sacrifice his son. In troubled times, remember who it is that loves you. It's the God of creation, the one who flung the trillion stars into the universe like pinpricks of light. And he pinned the moon to the, to the breast of the night sky like a beautiful rose. It's, love who, it's the love that comes from the, the God who thrust up the mountains and dug out the valleys and filled the seas with life. It's the love from the same God whose mighty and powerful hands could also work with the tininess of the subatomic the intricacy of each molecule, the, the design of each snowflake. My Father will love them. This great lover is the sovereign Lord who controls all of life, whose plans are everlasting, whose will is unchanging, whose knowledge is immeasurable, and whose presence is everywhere, and he loves you. He wants you to know that when trouble comes and the pain grows and the anxiety deepens, that his love is sufficient. It's real. It's applicable to your every situation. If he knows and cares when a little sparrow falls from the sky, how much more will he not come alongside a hurting child? My father will love them and will come to them and make, and we will come to them and make our home with them. Do you hear that? Jesus says that God will prove his love to us in that we, the Father and the Son and the Spirit, will come to them and be with them. Takes us back to the first few verses of the chapter when he talks about his Father's house. So we have the guarantee of God's love, the entire triune God loving us, not only in the past, where Jesus poured out his blood for our salvation and we were redeemed and adopted into God's family, rescued from Serious, serious trouble. Not only day to day in the, in the present as the Holy Spirit comforts us and encourages us and guides us through the troubles that beset us every day, but also in the future. Either when we leave this life or when Jesus returns, he says we will come to them and make our home with them. And I have to ask myself, what more assurance do I need? 
We have the indwelling Holy Spirit. We enjoy the Father's love. And the final assurance is in the last few verses of this chapter from verse 25. We have the gift of peace. A few thoughts about this very special gift from God's Holy Spirit. Firstly, we may be inadequate, but the Holy Spirit will make us competent and courageous. We may be inadequate, but the Holy Spirit will make us competent and courageous. All this I have spoken while still with you. But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I've said to you. All this I have spoken while still with you obviously refers to all that Jesus has been teaching his disciples about love and obedience and and so on. Now Jesus repeats what he said earlier in verses 16 to 18 about this encourager, this paraclete, this, this comforter, this coach, this trainer who runs alongside the trainee athlete providing counsel and correction and hope and comfort and a positive perspective. I sometimes see it this way, that the Holy Spirit's task is to help us to reach excellence in what we do. He's there to help the believer towards a deeper dedication, to help them discard unnecessary hindrances and to become more and more obedient and more and more Christ-like. And he does this supernaturally. How does he do it? By recalling relevant parts of Scripture to our mind and to our heart at just the right time. That's how he does it. These verses make it very clear that the Holy Spirit had a very special ministry to three of these disciples in particular, to Peter and to John and to Matthew, because their job was to write Scripture. They had to write Gospels and so on. And this is why Jesus says, I will teach you all things, or he will teach you, the Holy Spirit will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. It helps them to write Scripture. Now, we're not tasked with the writing of Scripture. That was completed 1,900 years ago. But nonetheless, in our inadequacy, we still have the Holy Spirit making us competent in the midst of of our incompetence. Secondly, we may be fearful, but the peace of Jesus Christ is ours for the taking. We may be fearful, but the peace of Jesus Christ is ours for the taking. Verse 27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Do not be afraid. I guess it would be a huge understatement to say that these disciples were going to be facing some pretty uncertain hours over the next few days. It was going to be a weekend like no other for them. And even after the resurrection and the sending of the Holy Spirit 40-some days later, there were still going to be times of anxiety. So here, Jesus takes the best possible action he could have taken. What does he do? He focuses their mind on victory. The victory of peace. Now, peace is the well-known Jewish word, Hebrew word, shalom. And it means more than just the absence of conflict. It means Things like wholeness, completeness, health, security, contentment, even prosperity. 
Jesus here is promising that the victory of peace will be ours. That's the work of the Holy Spirit. Imagine you're watching a football game on television. You ever done that? <laughs> there are three this afternoon. Super Sunday. My team's not playing, but there's still three games. Now imagine you watching this game, but the difference with this game is it's already been recorded and you've actually watched it before, so you know what the outcome is, but the friends you're watching it with haven't seen it yet. So your viewing experience for the next 90 minutes is going to be quite different to theirs. They might shout abuse when a free kick is awarded or cringe when a clear opportunity to score is missed. But you know the result, so you just sit there calmly. You see, you are viewing the entire event through the lens of an assured outcome. You know the result. You're at peace. And it shows, boy, it pays to know the end result. How about this? When you're going through trouble, when you're going through tough times, and boy, are some of you going through tough times. The assurance comes when you view the whole event through the lens of an assured outcome. The victory of peace awaits. And this gives us terrific assurance. He says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take courage. I have overcome the world. That's from chapter 16. Almost finished. Circumstances may be dire, but the victory has been assured. You heard me say, says Jesus, I'm going away and I'm coming back to you. If you loved me, you would be glad that I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. I have told you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe. What Jesus is trying to do here is get across that his imminent death something the disciples are still trying to come to terms with, can either be seen as a calamity or a victory, depending on your perspective. Now, we know that he's predicted his death and resurrection many times, yet the disciples still haven't got a real grasp of it. They're taking part in something that they don't really still understand. If only they could accept their master's death was part of the master's plan, they'd have a lot more hope and a lot less fear. Listen to what he says. Listen carefully. In verse 29, I have told you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe. When, not if. God's plan is always a when plan, never an if plan. There are no contingencies to be planned for in God's planning. Nothing is going to stop him. And while God has still allowed us to have responsibility and make choices, he has nonetheless written the book of the future as firmly as is written the book of the past. The book of the past and the book of the future are equally fixed. So while present and even future may, may bring us tribulation, and may bring us trouble, and our life experiences will not always be pleasant, we can endure with real hope and with confident assurance. Why? Because the plans of God are assured of victory. 
God has when plans, not if plans. And no one understood this better than Jesus himself when he was facing the deepest of all darkness. Finally, circumstances may be challenging, but courage can be found in obedience. When I first looked at this, verse 31, it took me back. Verse 30, I will not say much more to you, he says, for the prince of the world is coming. He's talking about Satan here. He has no hold over me. But he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and I do exactly what the Father has told me. The prince of this world is none other than, as we have said, Satan himself. When the very first man and women chose to disobey God, all of creation fell under dominion of the author of sin and evil and death and corruption. And then came the incarnation, that first Christmas, the incarnation of God the Son, Christ coming to earth. An invasion, a mighty liberation force of one. And here Jesus is saying that this enemy is planning another strike. He's going to suffer the assault of the enemy. And he's going to have to suffer to free us from this dominion of sin. And at that very moment, Judas Iscariot is making plans with the religious officials, the temple police, Roman soldiers, to have Jesus arrested. But notice how the Lord assures his followers that the means of overcoming fear of the enemy is one thing, obedience. And this is what got me. I had to look at it again and again and again, and I pulled out every commentary I had because I had to make sense of this. The means of overcoming fear is obedience. He has no hold over me, but he comes so that the world may learn that I love the Father and do exactly what the Father has told me. This obedience to the Father gives Jesus courage. What a lesson. We overcome anxiety and fear by simple obedience to what God clearly instructs us in his word. So here we have Jesus taking his disciples aside for the final instructions before they will have to continue without him. He will see them again for a short period of time, several weeks of instruction and fellowship. And he calls on them and he he sees men in front of him who are about to be rendered powerless by their fear. We know that because of what the Bible tells us. And we sometimes look down on those disciples and we say, how could they? How dare they? And we forget that we are plagued by exactly the same fears today. Lack of confidence in the truth of God's word causes this fear. They kind of trusted him, but they lacked the real confidence in what he was doing. I thought of it this way, and it's not strictly psychologically true, and for me as a psychologist to say this is probably uh, kind of almost like heresy. But in a sense, there is a 
profound difference between trust and confidence. Trust is the decision to accept as truth the words of Jesus and make them the basis of our decisions. That's trust. But confidence is more than that. It's a growing sense. It's a growing sense of peace, a growing feeling that we, we come to, as we come to apply the words of Christ in our lives, we see, we see things confirmed over and over again. Trust is a decision. Confidence is a feeling of assurance. In response to his disciples' fear, Jesus says to them again and again and again, Listen to what I've been telling you for the last three years. And we as believers need no longer have any reason to fear him, to fear fear the, the evil one. I do want to say this to you as I close. This confidence, this feeling of assurance, which is more than just, yes, I believe, this, this sense of assurance doesn't necessarily come the moment we come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Our decision to trust Christ as Lord and Savior is the beginning of a process. It's the beginning of a journey. It's the beginning of a process of growth in which we experience the truth of Christ's words personally through obedience. And as we progress and as the confidence grows, less and less space is left for fear. And this is the process that we'll look at next Sunday when we look at chapter 15 the process of what is called abiding, abiding. So, we've had these six assurances. I'm hoping that maybe one of them, at least, will work for you. Because I imagine there's nobody at all here who hasn't experienced of late some kind of heart trouble, some anxiety, some fear, It may simply be some uncertainty, or maybe it's much more than that. Maybe it's despair, disillusionment, alienation, whatever it might be. These are the assurances we have from God's Word. Your future is secure, number one. You know the Father right now. You have knowledge of the Father Himself right now, number two. Number three, you have the privilege of prayer. We talked about that in our home groups earlier in the week. And from today, you have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, lives in you now, permanently. You have the Father's love at your disposal. God is love and he loves you. And you have this wonderful gift of the ultimate victory of peace. Shalom, completeness, wholeness. I trust you know him this morning. If you don't, then I invite you to to get to know him. I invite you to remain behind even after the service today and, and meet with our pastor or myself or one of our elders and we will guide you as to how you can come to know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Then, then you enter into this wonderful assurance that no matter how troubled your heart might be, There is a way. There is a way.